You're listening to Girls Gone Canon, covering his dark materials. Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, covering his dark materials. Northern Lights, The Golden Compass, Episode 8, Chapter 21 to 23. I am one of your hosts, Chloe, you might know me from the internet as Lies and Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, and liesandarborgold.com. And I am Eliana, another one of your hosts. You might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit or Arithmetric over on Twitter. Oh my gosh. This is it. <laughs> we got here. This is the final Countdown. three chapters. This is... That's the sound the horror makes in the sky, it turns out. That's what Lyra was hearing. Fuck them kids. (laughs) Yeah, so I think we did it. I can't believe we've gotten this far. I know a lot of people are like, what what's gonna happen next? What What's going to happen next? What are we going to do, Eliana? So what we're going to do is we're going to continue coverage of the His Dark Materials show uh, as we've been doing, and that'll come out for all of you every week as the show episodes come out. The unfortunate fact is, of course, we are living in the past here in the U.S., (laughs) and we don't get episodes until Monday evenings. Yeah. I got to see the one really early, but that was it. That was my one steal, and now I am living with the peasants of the U.S. <laughs> with my dog servant, Demon. Yeah, and by that you mean your two cats. Yeah, no, they're two cats. They're awful. Two demons, one Chloe. <laughs> Actually, though. So that's what we're going to be doing until about the end of the year. Yeah, until the show ends. I think it ends right before Christmas, so right up to Christmas. So we'll finish then. And from there, I guess we'll wait it out. Maybe the new year you'll have some... Some very subtle podcasting arriving to a to some audio near some you. Some subtle podcasting with hopefully some sharp commentary. Yes, in uh, 2020, some sharp metallic commentary. That's just some cutting commentary, like a knife, if Yeah, you will. that sounds knife. <laughs> <laughs> I have no regrets you... in life. <laughs> You're this fired. This is what I'm going to tell. Holy shit. This is what I'm going to tell one day when I die. No, this is my story. So I made a lot of really good puns. Here are some of my greatest hits. <laughs> uh, yeah, we are going to start the Subtle Knife sometime in the new year. We'll have more on that as we get closer. Right now we have our hands full with John dying at the end of A Dance of Dragons. And with, of course, His Dark Materials Season 1, BBC, HBO. Wow. Great first episode. We talked about that. We just put out that episode a bit ago. Check it out if you have not listened yet. We do do some spoilers throughout the whole main trilogy. So be be warned. We, we've we come to, not to Jesus, not to Metatron on it, but we, we might not be the best at not doing spoilers. Yeah. So, of course, what we're trying to do in this current read-through of the podcast, right, is reading through the chapters and addressing things as it comes up, and then at the end of the episode, talking about content from the other two books, including La Belle Sauvage and The Secret Commonwealth later on in Dustier slash Dustiest discussions, though we might be a fairly clean episode today, only kind of dusty. Yeah, not so dusty. I think this episode's important, and it is important. In the overall, and I'll mention briefly, but I'm not 
not going to go to straight dusty discussion today. I think that's something you guys need to read on your own. But I guess what we're saying is that you should probably finish the Amber Spyglass <laughs> by 2020, bitches. Yeah, and... <laughs> I don't know if we can keep this up when we come back and do the subtle knife is what I'm saying, because I'm, I can't be tamed, Eliana. I can't be tamed. I have so many big thoughts. I'm, you guys are living in the golden compass, Northern lights. I am living in the Commonwealth, the secret Commonwealth with the jack-o'-lanterns and the fairies. I gotta catch up. Yeah. So we've been doing it in this way again, trying to keep it more spoiler free as we go through the, the chapters and then talking about the story as a whole towards the end and I think that's something that works really well for me in the way that I uh, think about stories because I like to look at them as a whole when I can because that's the sort of background that I come from right I come from a sort of literary background Mm -hmm. and I see stories in many ways as a a large encompassing argument and I like to be able to parse out all those things and look at how everything fits together as part of that, they're not always an argument. Sometimes they're an exploration, but looking at that journey as a whole is something that I really value. And I think that you feel the same way. Yeah, and that's the way the series is intended by Pullman, right? He's a storyteller. He knows where he's going and that he wants to get there, and he weaves his way there and drags us along with him, obviously. Sometimes kicking and screaming, depending what part of the book you're in. Sometimes we go very willingly, like unfortunately Roger goes oh in this episode. Um you know, it's it's a story, and there's an ending, and Pullman has that. He has that in sight, and he's given us that. So I like to look at it as a whole. I do. I think it's better as a whole. Yeah. But there are a lot of other podcasts that are covering his dark materials, and a lot of them are doing it and doing a much better job of being spoiler-free <laughs> than we are. So much better. And uh, we just wanted to call some of them out there as everyone starts you know, gearing up, getting super dusty themselves and interested in his dark materials. Yo, bro, want to get dusty? Get dusty. Get dusty. Uh, Up all night to get dusty. Yeah, so there are a bunch of different podcasts. The Amber Spycast is doing some stuff. They're doing chapter read-throughs. They're doing some other different things, too, I think. One of the people on the Amber Spycast, I almost said Spygast, like a Cliffgast. The Amber Spygast. Yeah, yeah. One of them is a middle school literature teacher. Yeah. So that's pretty that's cool. That's a really cool perspective. Yeah, and a lot of the, there's three of them, and they come from different perspectives. Yeah, and so there's a lot of people doing <laughs> podcasts on this, and we're making our way through some of them and checking them out, but here's some of them up front. There's another podcast called Demon Cast, and I don't know that they have a Twitter, but it seems as though they have a Facebook group and they're doing sort of like a meta commentary and looking mm-hmm. at the story from that sense. Yeah, there's uh, the Demon Dust podcast. They're fun. I've uh, seen a couple of their different tweets and things. The Dust podcast, that's actually one of our friends, Holly Hunt, is on that, and she has a couple of friends that are discussing his dark materials about. There, It's awesome. One of them, Matt covers the music huh. which i think is really really cool really cool it's a different perspective yeah that is and lauren is doing an awesome job as we've discussed uh did you guys hear our new intro on the historic <laughs> materials episodes the the show episodes because i think it was very inspired lauren i hope you like it it shows it for you and i think it's pretty cool that they're covering the music i know that it seems as though the showrunners are very proud right now. They've been putting out a lot of content about that music and i think the soundtrack's already out and it's something that i don't I don't know much about music other than I like listening to it and singing. (laughs) 
I think it's on Spotify. I gotta yeah. listen to it. We have a family account, you guys. We We're are. A family. We're a household. <laughs> Another podcast is Dustbusters, and they've just started. They are covering the show, and their hosts have a couple of other podcasts as well. Yeah, there's uh, Louisa Maycock, who's from Girls on Tops. They do shirts and clothing for celebrating women in the film industry, which I thought is awesome. And there's Jake Cunningham. He's on Ghibliothek, which is a Studio Ghibli podcast, and also Little White Lies. Thought that was neat. Yeah. Definitely a new perspective to cover things from. I should check that out. I didn't know that there were Studio Ghibli podcasts. I never thought to look for them. I know. I'm about to download <laughs> all of them. <laughs> Oh man, I should do a Ghibli rewatch. Oh, this is such. This is. <gasps> what if we did a Ghibli this rewatch? Is so exciting! I have like something to live for. <laughs> I'd be interested. Yeah, I'm just saying. We could do it. Oh, mm-hmm. holiday season's a good time to do it too. So family friendly yeah. and warm. And warm yeah. and food. There's also, really good. Also, it's food. a good idea in retrospect because Miyazaki has had a lot of focus right on having these very different and mm-hmm. stories that have also different female protagonists and main characters so it makes sense to come from that sort of background and perspective too to these books anyway ghibli podcast there's also another podcast called her dark materials you can find them on twitter at at hdm pod if you like chloe and my banter i would check them out they're hosted by Faye and rachel and they're pretty funny and they're also doing uh they're doing chapter by chapter as you all know chloe and i are grouping these chapters and a lot of these other folks are doing chapter by chapter or episode by episode and mm-hmm. yeah i think they also just released i haven't checked it out yet though their review of the past episode mm, nice there's pandemonium they're covering only the show no books involved no book analysis they are show only it's podcast for people only watching the show so if you're looking for a not book-tainted review, which you would never find here, I'm sorry, it's just the way we are. We cannot separate it. It's like our demon. Mm-hmm. The books are our demon for the show. So check out Pandemonium. Yep. And then you have Dark Material Pod, and I've been really enjoying them. This is hosted by Ian and Amy, and I think they have a mm. science background, but they've been doing a really great job of diving in depth with some things that I didn't think to look into they're doing it also chapter by chapter and theoretically like you know no spoilers but they're still bringing a lot of really great information uh they also have made me rethink of the demons as pokemon but i'm also now thinking maybe they're more of digimon Mm. Mm. you know um there's a i was just saying there's a there's a thread you guys were chatting about that and i think on twitter and I had piped in, but I just downloaded a mod for The Sims that lets you have what? A Pokemon. What? Like, specifically Pokemon? Mm-hmm. Up to what number? And there's, like, a Jigglypuff oh that makes God. your person go, just one, you can get one. But it makes people go to sleep. You can have it attack people, too. But how many, like, yeah. like, can you download, let's say, for example, a Gen 4 Pokemon? Can you incorporate that? No, no, it's all Gen mm-hmm. 1, and it's brand new, so it's, like, new, you yeah. know. But it's pretty cool. It's like having your own demon, for, for sure. sure. Very meta, very meta. Um, Measures of Truth Pod. They're part of the Hollowed Ground Network of podcasts, and they're covering this as well. I haven't really gotten to look into them yet. There's Extraneous. They're doing some really good coverage. And then there's also Demon's World. Uh, They're at Demon's World underscore on Twitter. I think it's a Spanish podcast. I'm not sure. So 
as you can see, you know, there's a lot of people covering this right now. And so we're, we're excited to see this like blossoming podcast community. I'm sure that, you know, these books have been around for a while. Obviously, there are online forums and communities that have been covering this also like Twitagaze. Yeah, right. And Bridge to the Stars is one of those like OG places where people have been talking about the books. So yeah, and I think we're going to try to work at making like a little resource with a list of all these people, right? Uh, I think that'd be really awesome if we just built up this community. I mean, there's obviously been great resources like com from the Twitagaze on Twitter and a couple of people that have contributed to all of that in the forums. And it'd be awesome to just bring it over to Twitter. You know, we have Twitteros in the A Song of Ice and Fire fandom uh, where people go in for the discourse and why not have our own little Oxford right? Twitter's Oxford. So really cool to see all these podcasts. Can't wait to listen to all the coverage. Eliana has gotten to listen to them a little bit this week. I am taking a vacation to listen to them this weekend. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Well, with this episode, Eliana, a lot of people keep asking what our demons are. I still don't think I know enough animals. (laughs) Like, honestly, when they told me like, honestly, sometimes I see these demons and I'm like, I don't know what that fucking animal is. I'll like say something right? and I'm like googling it. I'm like fascinating. That's not what I would have thought that was. <laughs> you sent me a bunch of uh, like painted birds the other day, and I was like, I could see that yeah. for you. I could see you being a bird. I don't know if that's the right one, but I could see it. I think that we won't. They won't settle until like we read the Amber Spyglass. I think after that we'll grow up. Yeah. And our demons have to. What if settle. I'm an amoeba? You know, that's an animal. <laughs> What if I'm a mole, just like with my Patronus? Oh, that's right. That'd be awful. <laughs> Mine was some sort of horse, which, like, I guess a lot of people have been suggesting. Maybe I'm a horse. Uh, I was also thinking while in the bathroom. I have a lot of thoughts in the bathroom, as I was telling Chloe. Same. Uh, maybe a llama or an alpaca. Those are those are contenders. Ooh, an alpaca. Very skinny and long. Yeah, and soft. I was thinking soft. And very floof. Yeah. Yeah. That could be me. I think mine has to be a feline of sorts. Yeah, I could see it. I could see it. Yeah, I don't know what else. That's all I can think of. But I think I'm a feline of sorts, which feels kind of plain. I feel like a lot of people have cat demons in this world, right? But that's okay. Like Sophie. I could be a rat. Oh, rats are tenacious, you know, if you really think about it. So's Lyra. Exactly. I, I saw a video of, I don't know if it was a rat or a mouse, but it's climbing through. They can hold their breath for quite a bit underwater. I mean, I can't, but it was climbing. You know how toilets go, it's got that yes. U-shape, and it yes. showed them doing that. And I was like, amazing. It's terrible and terrifying, but also amazing. I could be that. I've seen some really crazy, like, New York rats that are, like, three feet yeah. long. They're, like, the size of cats. Crazy shit. You know, I could be a rat, but, like, be a good companion for you as the same size. Oh, my God. <laughs> are you my demon now? I'm I so confused. <laughs> okay, listen. We are covering chapters 21, 22, 23, Lord Asriel's Welcome, Betrayal. Betrayal. And chapters 23, The Bridge to the Stars today. And we will have a discussion. We're not going to have a dusty discussion, like I said. Yes. So, of course, again, our dust discussion is our book spoilers after section. Tune out if you don't know what happens in the subtle knife and the amber spyglass. We're finally at a point where, like, we can't, we don't have to say if you don't want to know what happens in the rest of the Golden Compass and the Northern Lights because this is it, y'all. I assume you've read these yeah, three at chapters. This point, log yeah, off. I assume you've read these three chapters because you know we discussed them all together. All right. Yeah. 
You've been here every week doing your homework. Also, like, the last two chapters are, like, bang, bang. They're very short, punchy. Very short. Uh, Very punchy. But all, like, there's so much good language. It was so tempting for us to just be like, what if we just quoted the whole thing? Because, like, Pullman clearly poured his heart out into writing a lot of these these moments in the book. Yeah. (sighs) Absolutely. Anyway, let's start off with 21, Lord Asriel's welcome. Goodbye. Goodbye, Lord Azrael. Yeah, you can leave yeah, right now. I'm, go- I'm leaving. <laughs> Wrong mm-hmm. house, sorry. My bad. I wish, I wish. But instead, you, we have Lyra and Roger. They ride atop younger bears with York ahead of them. And Spalbard is actually harder to traverse than the route that Lyra took coming up north because it's full of mountains and ice. I really love that the world building Pullman has extended here covers later on um, when she gets to kind of that fissure in the earth. He doesn't just make the fissure up like it's a fantastical thing that happens. Like, suddenly, the earth split in front of Lyra. No, that fissure existed. There was a bridge there. That's the problem. Um, It's a normal thing in the north, right? Like, this broken, cold, frigid region covered in snow. So it's not surprising when we come across this big fissure in land that makes it hard for her to get across to get to Roger. Yeah, and and that landscape plays a big part in the plot, right? It of what happens mm-hmm. to Lyra and Roger and how they're able to maneuver through it. Also kind of reminds me of that show. I didn't watch too much of it, but people in the trucks and they drive across the ice. Really stressful show. Anyway. I'm stressed already. It's stressful. I'm like, can you do that? Anyway. Lyra doesn't know where they're headed, but the older bear, Soren Iserson, who I'm pretty sure after these moments is never again mentioned, tells them that these fire hurlers are being prepared. And Soren is able to share details about Azrael's imprisonment because he was there uh, being basically a lawyer bear. Oh my god. And Azrael theoretically didn't have it better or worse than any of the other prisoners who also, I mean, anyone who's imprisoned up here, right? So we get this idea that a lot of them are, like, we saw that other professor close to Lyra. They're all important in their own way, but his jailers were pretty wary of him. Because everyone else was pretty scared of him, and also this dust stuff is pretty weird. Yeah, we know what was happening behind the scenes, too, right? Like, Mrs. Coulter had interactions with Eofer. Um, Asriel was also a total dick to all the jailers. <laughs> yeah. They dominated Eofer, which runs in the family, obviously. Look at yeah. Lyra and Eoric. She doms him, tops him all the time. Yeah. Eofer but- had... Yofer was big bottom energy trying to be a top, you know? I get that. I get that. <laughs> is, he... is that you? <laughs> yes. Uh, so Asriel, because he's such an asshole and so charismatic, he was like Goldilocksing his own dwelling place. He was like, the first one he allotted was too low down, he said. He needed a high spot above the smoke and the stir of the fire mines and the smithies. He gave the bears a design of the accommodation he wanted and told them where it should be. He bribed them with gold. He flattered and bullied Eo for Ragnason. And with a bemused willingness, the bears set to work. Before long, a house had arisen on a headland facing north. A wide and solid place with fireplaces that burned great blocks of coal mined and hauled by bears with large windows of real glass. There he dwelt, a prisoner, acting like a king. And then he set about, assembling the materials for a laboratory. With furious concentration, he sent for books, instruments, chemicals, all manners of tools and equipment. And somehow it had come, from this source or that, some openly, some smuggled in by visitors he insisted he was entitled to have, 
by land, sea, and air, Lord Azrael assembled his materials, and within six months of committal, he had all the equipment he wanted. I really like that you used the British pronunciation of laboratory. <laughs> I wanted to point that out. I thought it was appropriate. Yeah, no, it, it is. You know, maybe we should just... These words have different meanings, Yeah, okay? northern lights in some places. Some places, it's mm-hmm. mortal combat. Anything could happen. Anything. <laughs> But I pulled out this quote because I love the way that they have been portraying Asriel in these chapters. It really digs into the whole connections with Paradise Lost, this idea of a prisoner acting like a king in this. But then something struck me about this line of, by land, sea, and air, Lord Asriel assembled his materials. And I felt that the language here echoed the quote from Paradise Lost at the beginning of this book. And granted, much of this quote, the first part, right, is about the almighty maker and etc but the the last part is about satan of course and so he goes into this wild abyss the womb of nature and perhaps her grave of neither sea nor shore nor air nor fire but all these their pregnant causes makes you follow like read these books confusedly and which thus must ever fight unless the almighty maker them ordain his dark materials to create more worlds it's a thing into this abyss, the wary fiend stood on the brink of hell and looked a while pondering his voyage so that idea of by land sea and air materials and of neither sea nor shore nor air it's flipped it's that opposite yeah and it is kind of opposite right like asriel and we talked about this in our very first episode if you remember flashback to no i don't uh (laughs) lord asriel and asriel meaning lucifer and meaning satan right and we'll talk about it later, but Asriel very much so is comparable to Milton mm-hmm. Satan. That's who he is in this story. Uh, and here's the thing. Lyra is Asriel's daughter and Coulter's. She refuses to believe she's Coulter's, but she's both. She's able to trick bears, which Asriel was just able to trick bears this easily. That's what this whole passage was, just being like, so Asriel played them, like his little servants, and... It's crazy. I can't believe it's that impossible to trick bears. Like, I'm starting to question if that's true, because anyone with a dash of charisma seems to be able to. I don't know if it's charisma or he just, like, scared all of them, right? And they just respect, I don't know, strength. And he's like, I'm a scary man with my snow leopard demon. And they're like, okay... (laughs) well and look at Coulter same thing she has the Tartars scared to her side that's her army yeah that's true Asriel has been waiting waiting in his prison for his final final dark ingredient to arrive which of course as we already know if you're reading these chapters it's Roger Lyra finally sees it at a ridge there is no aurora it's apparently formidable this place because it has expensive glass and Interesting line here. And so to see them here was evidence of wealth and influence far greater than Yofer Rackinson's vulgar palace. But Asriel is a master manipulator. Uh, I don't know. I really hate Asriel. Yeah. He's just not compelling. We're going to talk about it later. He's not compelling. Um, the children support each other to get to the steps of the door. This line kills me. <sighs> And, and within the narration, it's, Oh, the warmth there would be inside that house. Oh, the peaceful rest. <laughs> no, it's the walking dead. <sighs> Thorold, Asriel's manservant, opens the door. Asriel realizes who's arrived. And at first he's like, oh, it's Lyra. But then he freaks the fuck out. 
No, no, he staggered back and clutched at the mantelpiece. Lyra couldn't move. Get out, Lord Azrael cried. Turn around, get out, go, I did not send for you. She couldn't speak, she opened her mouth twice, three times, and then managed to say, No, no, I came because... He seemed appalled. He kept shaking his head. He held up his hands as if to ward her off. She couldn't believe his distress. She moved a step closer to reassure him, and Roger came to stand with her, anxious. The demons fluttered out into the warmth, and after a moment, Lord Azrael passed a hand across his brow and recovered slightly. The color began to return to his cheeks as he looked down at the two. James McAvoy is going to do a good job at this. Yeah. This is what I can't wait to watch. In the first episode... They actually put in the script as a meta little comment, him saying to Lyra, I didn't send for you. And I thought that was interesting. It's going to it's gonna make us feel sad at the very end. I think it was during like the ship scene or something when he's like, I didn't send for you. Oh, I think yeah. that's interesting, especially because there are interactions with uh, Roger now. Uh, yeah, they're building it up yeah, very hard. They are. Uh, it and it, it's so hard. Like when you reread it, and you're like, oh, and you realize all what's of going this on. is so obvious. It's glaring. Yeah, obviously, I didn't catch it like until at it twelve. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as Azrael calms down, then like Lyra explains that she brought him the lithiometer. Yeah, and he's really snide. He's like, of course you did. Immediately, he asks who Roger is, and Lyra explains his name and says he's the kitchen boy from Jordan College. Yeah, we've kind of touched on, like, this classism that is part of the story in His Dark Materials. We've talked about it even a little bit with, like, Mrs. Coulter saying, yeah, we don't use the subway, which they call the Chthonic Railway, because it's not for people like us. But there's a part of me that wonders, would Asriel have been less inclined to use the child Lyra had brought if she hadn't explained that he's the kitchen boy from Jordan College? Or if she had said, Mm -hmm. like, he's Lord Boreal's son or something like that? I mean... Granted, a child like that wouldn't have been captured anyway, and that's part of the whole class system. But I'm like, would Azrael have hesitated if it were a, yeah. a, a higher class child? Or would he still just been like, no, fuck this shit, it's my work. Yeah, and I feel like there's a lot of meta that like someone who liked Azrael would probably argue that he's like struggling with his demons in this moment, right? Because he's all like, oh, I didn't send for you, and he's like enraged. But now he's totally gripped in. He's like, interesting. So can you tell me more about this Roger kid? What's he What's he into? Yeah. You know, he, does he like playing with blocks? Like, what is he? What's he about? You know, like, what's he like? What can I uh, What can I do to comfort him before I kill him? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think, I mean, <sighs> Azrael probably would still use him for his, his whole experiment, regardless of his background, I think. Because he's like, fuck this. I'm out. <laughs> yeah, I feel me. like at this point it's time. But it still sucks. And I think the way that he yeah. reacts, right? It's similar to Mrs. Coulter seeing Lyra in the machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, freaks out. Very much so. I, I can see that. It's very much so paralleling when she stops the machine. Yeah. When Azrael asks how they got there, Lyra's like, if you'd stop interrupting me, I came with Eoric. But now she's like, fuck, now I have to explain Eoric. And. He's super popular only in niche communities, but he's not, like, you know, well-known. He's pretty indie. Uh, anyway, Azrael lets them in and shows them some hospitality, finally, and he's like, I'm going to go talk to this bear and pretend I'm a good dad. Yeah, the children wash separately, 
Though in the past they've like swum together naked, and then there is a line of like, but this was different. And Roger shares that he's afraid of Azrael to Lyra, and she's like, yeah, me too. But it's not really the same. <laughs> did it where Mrs. Coulter gives Pan a look, and Pan has to turn away as Lyra's bathing, and they're all like, why? This is weird. They're like, we've never done this before. It's it's similar to that. It's very similar similar to that here, and it's also isolating them. Right, like it's obvious he's isolating them for his own experiments, but the divide of the children speaks to the idea of severing and then idea of, of also dust or sin happening as well. It's the first time they've been separated. Yeah, it's all that, and it's like, like one of the first ways that we see them starting to become conscious of their sexuality, right? Because mm-hmm. it's not something that's ever really addressed before. We get a sort of it, right, with that scene with Pan that you mentioned, but Pan is Lyra. Right. Then we get this passage between Roger and Lyra. When we first come in, he never saw me at all. He only saw you, and he was horrified till he saw me. Then he calmed down all at once. He was just shocked, said Lyra. Anyone would be to see someone they didn't expect. He last saw me after that time in the retiring room. It's bound to be a shock. No, said Roger. It's more than that. He was looking at me like a wolf or something. You're imagining it. I ain't. I'm more scared of him than I was of Mrs. Coulter, and that's the truth. He splashed himself. Lyra took out the alethiometer. Do you want me to ask the symbol reader about it? Lyra said. Well, I dunno. There's things I'd rather not know. Seems to me everything I heard of since the gobblers come to Oxford, everything's been bad. There ain't been nothing good more than about five minutes ahead. Like I can see now, this bath's nice, and there's a nice warm towel there about five minutes away. And then once I'm dry, maybe I'll think of something nice to eat, but no further ahead than that. And when I've eaten, maybe I'll look forward to a kip in a comfortable bed. But after that, I dunno, Lyra. There's been terrible things we've seen, ain't there? And there's more a-coming, more than likely. So I think I'd rather not know what's in the future. I'll stick to the present. So the reason they're able to talk is she's from, she's kind of like outside the door, right? And I've actually really loved all of the live action interpretations I've seen of Roger thus far. They show him as this really perceptive kid. You know, he's also very clever and he notices different things from Lyra. And, Mm -hmm. but like he notices them as he saw here with Asriel. And I don't know, to be honest, all he's saying right now of wanting to stick to the present, practice some self-care is some... major vibes but it's too bad did you know and this is uh this is a no spoiler fact but roger is actually cousins with the housekeeper mrs lonsdale oh i did not know that he's yep they have the same uh her maiden name as his last name he's got quite a few people that he's uh related to right there's the also Mm -hmm. the other he's like the baker's son or something yeah so interesting after Lyra holds the alethiometer for a bit for comfort, and the two have washed, Thorold takes Roger away for bed, but Lyra is to join Azriel in the library, which is a beautiful library. It has a great view. Rent's real good up in Svalbard. It's real good. It's real good, apparently, so he's got a sick place. Rest of... Yeah, MTV Cribs? Yeah, actually, though. That's literally what this chapter is. It's uh, Azriel's MTV Cribs chapter. This is his summer home, and by that I mean winter home, I guess? I don't know. Yorick is like outside though he doesn't come inside because he being you know the panzer bjorn prefers the cold Azriel asks Lyra so he's like really a king now and she's like yeah Yorick never lies unlike some people 
<laughs> she didn't say that, but I'm thinking it. <laughs> That's exactly what it feels like. <laughs> it's what it feels like. That's literally what this feels like, though. It's like the whole time she's just like, I can't believe you lied to me. And all of us are like, we can. Yeah, but also at the same time, when I think about it, she's like, York never lies. Unlike me, I lie all the time. <laughs> oh, Lyra. Right. <sighs> she uh, she also thinks Eorik is watching over her because he's following John Fa's orders, but obviously we know it's not true. It's because he also signed those adoption papers with Lee and Serafina. And the master. And the master. So Lyra confronts him about being her father and says he should have told her. She says, I would have been proud. Eh. Um, hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, all of our parents disappoint us. <laughs> Yeah, he continues disappointing her too because yeah. he does not give her anything in this. Oh, he gives her a hell of a lesson at the end. Um, moral fiber, uh, something. Azrael, all right. So, who told you all this? And she's like, and he says, so do you know about your mother? And she's like, yeah, I do. And he's like, all right, word. So I have nothing left to explain here then. <laughs> Did my parenting for the year? <laughs> Good job, me. Uh... He doesn't want to be interrogated and condemned by an insolent child, he says. So he's like, what happened on the way here? And Lyra's like, I brought you the alethiometer. Yeah, and she goes on this whole tirade where at the same time she's like, I didn't even get a thank you. You look like you didn't want to see me. You're a shit dad. I love Farder Corman York more than you. This is actually <laughs> in my, an accurate summary of what she's saying. I'm going to throw mm-hmm. this out there. And... At the same time as her throwing all of this shade, she's also giving a summary of her trip up here and truly the skill, the mastery to yeah. do both at the same time. The charisma, the petty. <laughs> I'm so envious. Uh, Azrael is like, didn't you say Eoric doesn't love you? But And then he's like, if you're going to be emotional, I'm not dealing with any of this. And she's like, fine, I'll go. Take your lithiometer. I'll just go deal with the whole entire world that's falling apart. But Asriel doesn't move to take it, and Lyra's like, oh yeah, by the way, mom's coming with an army. Holy fucking dysfunctional family. Yeah, poor Lyra. She had a family back in Oxford. Yeah. That is the language in like the first chapter. It's like, but it felt like a family, probably. She knew what one was like. <sighs> That's what it felt like in Lyra's Oxford in the story, too. That's true. Aw. Anyway. It was her Oxford. It was her home. Lyra gives her whole summary of what happened and asks what dust is. She says she has a right to know. And Azriel looks at her seriously for the very first time. because She's a very small girl and says, dust is what makes the alethiometer work. He goes into an explanation that the church always knew about it and had been preaching about it for centuries, but that they're elementary particles discovered by a Muscovite, Boris Mikhailovich Rusikov. Is it Rusikov? Rusikov? I think Rusikov. I don't know. It's up in the air. Uh, like electrons, photons, neutrinos, it didn't react normally, it was difficult to measure, and they clustered around humans, especially adults, but not really children until their demons settled. Rusikov got in trouble with the church, especially with the consistorial court of discipline for this, and they exercised and interrogated him, and then had to accept he wasn't lying and that it was real. The church decided it was physical evidence of original sin. Yeah, so quite the info dump here and there's actually a lot of different examples of the church questioning people who are proposing scientific progress or or theories and i think a really good corollary to all of this that happens in our world 
is what happened to Galileo and his assertions of heliocentrism, of course, which means the Earth revolves around the sun. And this was actually Mm -hmm. deemed heresy, which we've seen thrown around a lot throughout this world of people going, no, this is heresy. And in fact, in an interview that was released on November 8th, 2019, so very, very, very recently, literally like less than 24 hours probably, as of recording this, Pullman has discussed Galileo. He actually provided a foreword for a book about, I don't know, philosophy and scientific thought by someone named Philip Goff that just came out recently. Mm-hmm. Two Phillips. One Galileo. Never mind. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> but Pullman, in this interview, which uh, heavily talks about the secret commonwealth, says, in just the same way that the Catholic Inquisition of the 17th century persecuted Galileo, who brought new ideas, like the sun being at the center of the universe, the church persecuted them because they seemed to contradict what the Bible said, and the church, being in control of everything, wanted to command people's thoughts as well as what they did. They were very fierce and severe in defending this knowledge that we now know to be untrue. So the magisterium in my book is doing the same sort of thing with this idea of dust. Hmm. Yeah, these are all very much so tied together such an interesting connection i love that pullman's so open with what his influences are right like there's the change in william blake's terms innocence to experience that he talks about regarding what the magisterium and what this kind of child's journey in the story is Um, i'm interested as we go forward especially in exploring the subtle knife and the amber spyglass to see more of this tied up together yeah yeah it's definitely gonna become more of a thing but for now lyra doesn't like being asked what what she understands dust or original sin to be because she feels as though she's being quizzed on something she'd been half taught it reminds her of her days over in jordan college yes and Azra's like all right go get the bible all right and then we have this quote which we actually discussed in our recent review of the first episode of the bbc slash hbo his dark materials live action And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and your demons shall assume their true forms, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to reveal the true form of one's demon, then she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened and they saw the true form of their demons and spoke with them. But when the man and the woman knew their own demons, they knew that a great change had come upon them. For until that moment, it had seemed that they were at one with all the creatures of the earth and air, and there was no difference between them. And they saw the difference, and they knew good and evil, and they were ashamed, and they sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. So that's supposed to be from the book of Genesis in the Bible, but here's what it sounds like in real life. The language is incredibly similar. So here's the part, only part that's really markedly different, right? Where the serpent explains, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When no one saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. 
And that's more or less like the part that's different in Lyra's world. This is tied to the settling of demons, which shows us very much where Pullman is taking this story. Yeah, and Asriel says it himself that that is how sin came into the world. Sin and shame and death. It came the moment their demons became fixed. So there's your canon. Demons get fixed and then dust settles upon you. Yes. And interestingly, Mrs. Coulter is the one who makes that discovery, but we'll talk about that in a bit. Lyra protests that the Cassington scholar said that Adam and Eve are a fairy tale, and Azrael's like, yeah, well, that's the whole reason why he has that scholarship. He's supposed to challenge faith, which it's fascinating to me that this is a designated scholarship within Jordan College. Mm-hmm. And it's not fake. Like, this is a real scholarship type thing that happens. Like, people are granted money to challenge faith on these things. Yeah. Interesting. It's It's just so fascinating. That, I mean, classic sanctuary, but also it's being funded and meant to happen. And I understand that there's this idea that one challenges faith in order to strengthen it. But it sounds like the Cassington scholar really doesn't fucking believe it. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Anyway. Asriel, though, explains... It sounds like he believes it, because he says, But think of Adam and Eve like an imaginary number, like the square root of minus one. You can never see any concrete proof that it exists, but if you include it in your equations, you can calculate all manner of things that couldn't be imagined without it. found that interesting. That is interesting. He says the church decided that's what dust was. God more or less says it, too, to Adam and Eve at the end of that chapter. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. This is this is a Bible quote. Like, it's literally a Bible quote. That's all it is. Yeah, this is literally what's in there. There's nothing different. <laughs> oh my god. Um, Ezreal explains the church thought dust was maybe a mistranslation, or it was about the ground and returning it to death, but... The word was good, so they just kept using it. Yeah, and that's why we use it in discussion. It's a good-ass word. Yeah, it's lit. <laughs> God damn it. Um, Lyra asks about the gobblers, and Asriel says Coulter was always clever, that the magisterium lets different agencies happen to compete against one another, and they always pick the winning side. So we've never really gone that in-depth, I think, about some of the implications behind the church and how it was formed in Lyra's world compared to how it evolved in ours. And I, again, highly recommend checking out the Dark Material podcast. You can find them at Dark Material Podcast, singular material, all right, dot com, and their episode on Chapter 2, The Idea of North, for a great breakdown of what this all means in the context of, like, John Calvin, predeterminism, and, like, different branches of the church. Also for insight on Jackie Chan adventures. Oh my god. (laughs) Truly, our brethren. (laughs) So there's this quote about Mrs. Coulter. You see, your mother's always been ambitious for power. At first she tried to get it in the normal way, through marriage. But that didn't work, as I think you've heard. So she had to turn to the church. Naturally, she couldn't take the route a man could have taken, priesthood and so on. It had to be an orthodox. She had to set up her own order, her own channels of influence, and work through that. It was a good move to specialize in dust. Everyone was frightened of it. No one knew what to do. And when she offered to direct an investigation, the magisterium was so relieved that they backed her with money and resources of all kinds. Yeah, knowing kind of what we know now with the church saying dust is sin, they seek to control it still because it's powerful, right? 
Coulter tried to harness its power and learn what it can do. She evaded laws of the land in places like Bulvanger and Svalbard to start doing cruel experimentation. Uh, and Azriel is out here harnessing it to get into other worlds. And the Faith probably surely seeks to control that, as we may think maybe might happen. <laughs> if they had the power to do so, or are they already? We just don't know. But dust is only bad if you're just a peasant, right? Like, dust is only bad to keep you from wanting to obtain its power. They tell everybody in their world it's bad, but there's literally nothing wrong with it. They don't even, like, know what it does, right? They're just like... yeah fear-mongering yeah they don't even know what it does and like you said they are using it to control some people but they're like i don't really know what this is <laughs> lara continues to be appalled at intercision wonders why the church would allow it Azrael's like well they let them more or less do it to boys just for fucking music for a long ass time and we have this quote from Azrael saying, But the church wouldn't flinch at the idea of a little cut, you see. There was a precedent. And this would be so much more hygienic than the old methods when they didn't have anesthetics or sterile bandages or proper nursing care. It would be gentle by comparison. Yeah, Lyra insists, Well, it isn't gentle. And Azrael's like, Of course not. That's why they do it up here in the darkness and obscurity of the north. Why, like, same thing I said. Why did Marisa put her business there? What do you think? Uh... And why the church was so glad to have someone like your mother in charge. Who could doubt someone so charming, so well-connected, so sweet and reasonable? Yeah, it seems evident from the aforementioned passages, but apparently Mrs. Coulter actually, like we said, is the first to realize that dust settling happens at the same time as demon settling. So, very interesting. Give us the Marisa Van Z backstory. We deserve it. Yeah, I I want to know. She's a, she's such an interesting character, and I think that obviously there's something a little off about her internally, or else she wouldn't be able to do the things she does. But I think my theory's right about the severing. I really do. That she's been I don't know. I think she did something. I don't know that she was yeah. severed, but she did something on her travels. I guess something, and she's so hollow. Um, I enjoy. These three chapters are basically Asriel telling Lyra, like, your mom is a clever, smart bitch. She's crazy, and the sex is really good, because look at you. Like, that's basically what this chapter is. He's like, she's crazy. She's just fucking nuts. Uh, and she is smart, though. She's so smart. It's something we're noticing. She's always there, foiling the plans, showing up. Lyra's like, how did she get here so fast? Always. It's interesting that Asriel's not the only brilliant one. Like Lyra always thought, right? Marisa's ten times as clever. She works ten times as hard. And she's had to do all of this villainy the hard way. Asriel just laughed and smiled to the bank, right? Like, Marisa had to build an empire. I'm just putting it out there yeah. as far as villains go. Uh, and Lyra, of course, she she spent all this time refusing to see Asriel as a villain. Like, she just wants to praise him and wants to love him. But he is so classic textbook Milton Satan. He's arrogant and powerful and charismatic he has that same kind of charisma and milton satan was the most beautiful of all angels who was cast out from heaven after a failed rebellion condemned to hell and the most famous quote of course is better to reign in hell than serve in heaven lucifer said and shout out by the way to lucifer's mom because he was born of the aurora mm. did you know that i did not thought it was interesting it is interesting. I agree with everything that you're saying about 
Marissa Coulter. And like you said, she had to work 10 times as hard. I think that this shows, you know, her, her sort of ambition, her deadly ambition and what she's willing to do for it, which is appalling and terrible. But at the same time, like, you can see that she's grasping for power, but there's there's something that you have to, like, sort of think that it sucks that she had to take these unjust routes. She was going to do something terrible no matter what, probably, whenever she had power. But, yeah. I mean, what if she didn't, right? What if she had, like, normal routes to power available to her? What if she had normal, like, ways to be a person and had more choices in her life? What if they had kept Lyra? What if Asriel yeah. had denounced it all like, and just said, let's just run into the countryside together? What if Coulter had gone with him? Well, I guess we're going to question that soon, too. What well, if Coulter had gone with him? Every time we ask that, but... What if Coulter was allowed to have her own job, right, and have her own career while having a kid? What if she didn't have to be an evil villain, femme fatale? Yeah, what if she could have both? Yeah. Right? Men get to have both. What is this world? How come Azriel gets to be handsome and sympathetic? Uh, because it's book one, not book three. Uh, but even then, no spoilers. We'll talk about this later. Okay, let's just keep going. We got to talk about this in the Dusty discussion because... Yeah, and speaking more about, you know, Marissa Coulter's ambition and all the things she's done, like when she said she was an explorer to Lyra at the beginning or something like it, it's true. She's been to a lot of different places. It was in Africa that she learned that something like intercision was possible at seeing zombie slaves there, mm -hmm. which which are kind of likened to the phantoms in the northern forest. Mm -hmm. Right? And Azriel explains that something else happens when a child is cut. <sighs> yeah. They didn't see it. The energy that links body and demon is immensely powerful. When the cut is made, all that energy dissipates in a fraction of a second. They didn't notice because they mistook it for shock or disgust or moral outrage, and they trained themselves to feel numb towards it. So they missed what it could do, and they never thought of harnessing it. Is this adrenochrome? You know, the, the shit that uh, the cabal uh, gets off on, you know, of torturing little babies, adrenochrome? It's like, basically, it's what your body elicits when you're made to fear or, like, induced fear or, like, you know, anxiety. Oh. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the other thing that Maybe. I've always thought this was. Like, I just don't say it because it's government conspiracy shit, but, you know. It might be. I think so. I'm just or saying. Or there's, like, that spiritual, like, also. Yeah, they're spirit connection. cooking. That's what they're doing. he hooks it up to the demon. Yeah, this is spirit cooking. That's literally what it yeah. is. They're spirit Ugh. cooking. Gross. Weird. Yeah. <sighs> And Lyra also is too disgusted to listen to this. And she's like, Asriel, have you ever done any of this cutting? And interestingly, he never says yes or no. He just says that he's interested in something quite different. I don't think the ablation board goes far enough. I oh. want to go to the source of dust itself. Oh. Red flags. I don't think they go far enough. Oh, you don't think the oblation board goes far enough? Oh, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. I hate him so much. So speaking of Paradise Lost, we're going to reference it a lot throughout this episode. One of the people that runs around with Satan is Moloch, who is uh, something like a deity known for child sacrifice. And here's the, here's the passage about him in Paradise Lost when 
at first with first mala cord king besmeared with blood of human sacrifice and parents tears though for the noise of drums and timbers loud their children's cries unheard that pass through fire to his grim idol there's also another another one that accompanies satan called mammon mm. who symbolizes greed and wealth but i really only put him in here because i wanted to talk about this cake in the philippines called mamon oh chiffon slash sponge cake got mm. it's it's kind of like the cake that i fed you but not quite mm. it's a little lighter than that that was really good when cake. you were here yeah anyway mamon is not the point of what i was referencing here it was moloch yeah child no, absolutely child sacrifice I don't think the inflation point goes far enough. What is that? That's like a huge like nine one one siren emoji. Like <laughs> I know, right? Red flag. Oh, this is <sighs> Dateline. Oh my God, Chris Hansen. Um, so yeah. <laughs> he wants to go to the place on the other side of the Aurora. Lyra thinks she doesn't love her father, but she admires him, and the extravagant luxury he'd assembled in this desolate wasteland, and the power of his ambition. How about you appreciate your mom's power? You've been living in this horrible society that has taught you that misogyny is okay, Lyra. Respect your mom. And we see that actually at the begin- beginning of the books, right? In the way that she regards Mrs. Coulter versus Dame Hannah. Mm-hmm. There's, there is a bit of that internalized misogyny on Lyra's part. She has no clue what Dame Hannah has been through either. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Mm-mm. I liked this, the, all the references to this like great kingdom-ish, like fancy-ass whatever cottage that Asriel has up here and how he's been just going about his work because it rece- reminds me of this other line that um, is used to describe Satan's power, right, in Paradise Lost of Receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell. A hell of heaven, what matter where, if I be still the same. And that's what Azrael does. He makes his own little paradise up here in the icy north where it's pretty shitty. And he's a prisoner mm-hmm. for the kingdom. And while I'm talking about heaven and hell, I want to talk about a different religious ep- epic poem, The Inferno. The ninth worst circle of hell is super icy people are trapped in the ice and stuff and dante's satan is trapped there and it's the circle where those who p- commit the crimes of treachery or are betrayers are kept Brut- brutus and cassius amongst julius caesar's assassinators are up there so it makes sense that we might find Azrael up here in the icy north satan right the coldest circle of hell especially as he betrays his daughter and it's also in this Icy wasteland that Lyra unknowingly ends up betraying Roger yeah. and begins her journey to the other worlds. Azriel wants to go to those other universes, the ones that witches have known about for a very long time. Theologians who proved them were excommunicated 50 years or more ago. Crossing was thought impossible until now. Until now. <laughs> Light can do it, so why can't Azriel? <sighs> Azriel is like figuring out how to become a new god. Basically. Basically. The other worlds. Like Kanye West. Yeah. The other worlds are basically alternate realities from different probabilities and possibilities coming to pass. And Azure's like, I'm piecing the fuck out. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> and he says, I think that the dust in this universe comes from that one, but and here's his quote. 
after explaining the the energy from kids being severed, he goes, It needs a phenomenal burst of energy, but I can do it. I wonder where he'll get that burst of energy. There's so many red flags right now. Uh, Lyra is too disgusted with him and herself to figure any of it out, too. <sighs> yeah, she's still blinded by, like, that slight admiration of, like... She's got some dust in her eye. <sighs> Azrael says, somewhere out there is the origin of all the dust. All the death, the sin, the misery, the destructiveness in the world. Human beings can't see anything without wanting to destroy it, Lyra. That's original sin, and I'm going to destroy it. Death is going to die. I don't... I don't know about all that, Azriel. Maybe. Maybe. We're going to talk about this in the discussion. Yeah. Lyra asks if all the stuff her uncle dad is spouting is why he's imprisoned. And he's like, yeah, they're afraid of me, and they should be. And then he and Stelmaria are just, like, preening. And Lyra's yeah. like, wow, he's crazy as fuck, too, but who am I to judge? I admire him. <laughs> Lyra's leaving, and Azure's like, oh, by the way, I don't need the alethiometer. Idiot. She realizes, I guess the master never actually told me to give it to him. She just kind of assumed because, uh, I don't know, why else would she have it? Azure's like, it's yours. Yeah, and she sits by the fire, and she just watches Azriel leave. She's kind of surprised about it. And she's kind of sitting there thinking, if that's not what he needed, then what did I bring him? He's so uninterested in the alethiometer, which holds answers uh, he and Coulter are opposites here. She wants what she can't understand and the power that it may hold, and he doesn't want to spend time on something like that. It's very interesting. But I can do it! <laughs> Chapter 22. Here we go. Eliana, what are we going to read? Chapter 22. Betrayal! Oh my god, I can't believe it's back. It's here. It's betrayal. Lyra's awakened by a trembling Thorold, shaking her telling her Asriel's mad and he doesn't know what to do. He's been packing instruments and batteries and he took the dogs and the boy, the Roger. Worse, Roger. Yeah, that too. The dogs are fine. I think that they end up being Okay, fine. can you show a little bit of sympathy to Roger then? Oh my God, what was that cheer for the dogs but nothing for <laughs> Roger? Uh, I just, I'm trying to like not think about what's going to happen to Roger. Thorold tells her Asriel needed a child to finish his experiment and that Asriel has a special way of bringing about what he wants. Lyra realizes what she's done. She thought he needed the alethiometer. He needed a child. She remembers his words to bridge the gap between worlds needs a phenomenal burst of energy. But I can do it. Oh my God. <laughs> Azriel commands Thorold to help her dress using uh, whatever Azriel energy inside of her she can find. Faces wet with tears while she's ordering him around. I'm thinking now of, you know that, that TikTok video of that girl dancing while crying? No. <laughs> Have you not seen this? No. It's great. You know, later Coulter's face is described as a sheet of tears. A mask of tears. Yeah, a mask of tears. Interesting, with Lyra's face full yeah. of tears here. I mean, yeah, there's a lot to cry about, as yeah. you said, Roger. Pan's pacing across the floor, and they run out, calling for York. She's like, come, I need your help! Ugh, amazing. I love their bond. She tells them the sitch, and off they race. And the other bears are behind them, following Azrael's tracks, till they seem to find him ahead. And Pan flies above as an owl to see Azrael lashing his dogs with Roger on the back of the sled. Pan uh, tries to listen to a sound that they can't quite hear, but Lyra can. It's 
the final countdown. That's the sound the Aurora makes, everyone. That's the crackle. Surprisingly. No, it does crackle, though, apparently. Like, it actually. It's about 230 feet up in the sky. It crackles. It makes kind of like a crackling, muffled noise. A Finnish huh. study in 2015 or 2016 did a stu- they did a study where they put microphones up, 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 and recorded and pinpointed the weird surging hiss during a magnetic storm. Hmm, that is super interesting. Yeah, good research, huh? Great job, Pullman. Yeah, I didn't know it made noise. Interesting. The bears seem to stop. There's something troubling them. And Lyra looks up at a cry from one of the bears. It's witches! At first she's excited, and then she's like, oh shit, these aren't my witches. As one (laughs) an arrow narrowly misses her. (sighs) Yeah, they're bad witches. Bad witches. That's a good payoff to the whole not all witches are on the good guy side, right? Uh, That we got earlier. Also, the good guy side is kind of like Asriel's side in this. So it turns out there really is no good guys. There's just Lyra. Yeah. Lyra. Lyra. Uh, it's her first time doing it this episode. We did good. Yeah, we did good. The bears move into a defensive formation, and when the witches dive toward them, they try to attack the most vulnerable point as they thrust up. Lyra hides behind a boulder. She's watching the witches begin to peel off and leave, but it's only a temporary relief because even more witches come to join, flying against the Aurora, and worse, from the same direction comes Mrs. Coulter's Zeppelin with an army aboard. Are you ever like, which side are they on? Uh, I have no regrets in life. You should. (laughs) The bears trust to their armor when it comes to the bullets, and they are like, all right, this fire hurler that we have, here it is, we're making our flamethrowing machine. They scoop pitch into their bowl and throw fire into the sky. A bunch of witches fall into the flame, but the bears are actually aiming for the zeppelin. And the zeppelin, again, has a machine rifle mounted to it. Sparks are flying off of the bear's armor, and Lyra's worried, and Yurik's like, no, trust in the heart of the cards. And they continue to use the flamethrower, hurtling it into the zeppelin's gas bag. And eventually they, they do it. The silk grips. Yeah. The zeppelin catches fire and uh, drifts to the ground. It's so much action, and he's really juggling it well. Uh, it yeah. feels natural somehow. I mean, I say that in the very next moment, witches and soldiers are like setting up a machine gun turret to kill armored bears with, but it's as, uh, it's as natural, you know, as an action sequence. It just makes sense, and I can't wait to watch yeah. it. Yeah. You thought it was going to be like a quiet action sequence. No, there's an entire battle being fought Yeah, here as Lyra chases after her dad. And for her, it's just about Roger, right? Mm-hmm. I want want this scene so bad. I'm excited to see this scene. The bears split. A group begins attacking the Tartars on one wing. Lyra's hidden. She wants to be in the fight, but she knows she can't. And all she can think about is Roger and Asriel. Eorik knows this, so he keeps moving them onward to find her friend. Pan's still an owl. He can't see any movement ahead at this point. They can only follow Asriel's tracks. There's this line here that I like because it's pretty much about the end of this book. Right. I loved it so much. (laughs) Whatever happened behind now was simply that. Behind. Lyra had left it. 
She felt she was leaving the world altogether, so remote and intent she was, so high they were climbing, so strange and uncanny was the light that bathed them. I love that so much. Lyra yeah. had left it. It's a foreshadowing. Yeah. Without, like, I don't know, 20 pages before it happens. <laughs> she asks Eoric to update Lee and Serafina on their position. She feels like she's dreaming. She's being carried to the stars by a bear. They come to the edge of a chasm, a big crack in the ice, but a bridge of snow remains, strained and splattered with sledge marks, and Eoric can go no farther. Lyra has to go alone from here on out. She turns to Eoric. I got to go across, she said. Thank you for all you've done. I don't know what's going to happen when I get to him. We might all die, whether I get to him or not. But if I come back, I'll come and see you to thank you properly. King Yorick Burnison. She laid a hand on his head. He let it lie there and nodded gently. Goodbye, Lyra Silvertongue. He said, her heart thumping painfully with love. She turned away and set her foot on the bridge. Ugh. I feel like your roar is kind of sultry. That's what I was going for. They're in love. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, Pan and Lyra cross the bridge. Pan's in leopard form, interestingly. Oh. And the bridge crumbles behind them. As she jumps into the snow, there was no way back. She's emulating Asriel to try to be brave. She is. She is. And Yorick stands on his hind legs as she waves to him. Her well, love. No, I made it! Her last fair love. I did it! <laughs> uh, he, uh. he heads down the mountain to help his subjects battle Mrs. Coulter and the soldiers. And the last line is, Lyra was alone. But she's not alone. And that's the she end of the chapter, fan. and that's the end of the book, because it's over and nothing bad happens. Nothing bad ever happens. This is it. This is what the story was about. Yep. Good story. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can find us online at... Uh, okay, I guess we have to read Bridge to the Stars. Damn, it really just all happens here. This is it, you guys. This is the last chapter of Northern Lights, the Golden Compass. Lyra is frightened and tired, and she tells Pan she wishes it were someone else instead of her. She's sobbing, and she's holding him, rocking back and forth in the snow. And she doesn't know what to do. She even got there, like, what if Mrs. Coulter got him first? Anyway, she's like, I don't know. Uh, she refuses to believe that Azrael's about to do this. Yeah, he's already there. Like, it's too late. I just want to, like, hold her and be like, honey, sweetie, it's probably over. Like, <laughs> yes, you have to keep trying, but Azrael has him. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard when you're like a 12-year-old kid, right? The yeah. entire fate of like the world and your best friends. She just has to remember. Your hands and your dad's hands. She just needs to remember that Coulter's not the only villain here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's about to learn that though. So she begins to wish out loud, but she stops herself. There's no point in wishing right now. The stars are at least gorgeous and dramatic in the Aurora, and the sunlit city peeks out from behind it, solid and clear. Everything on the ground is bleak, flat, and white. It's lifeless. And to the south as well. Uh, Pan flies up to sea, and he finds Roger and Asriel. They're just beyond the peak. Roger can't get away, and Asriel has all of his instruments laid out. As soon as Pan says this, the aurora flickers and goes out. Lyra can feel dust, like air full of, quote, dark intentions, like thoughts not born. And here's Roger cry for her. 
She yells that she's coming and begins climbing through the heaps of snow, fighting against what little strength she has left. Pan is changing form rapidly as she struggles from ermine to lion to eagle to wildcat to hare to salamander to owl to leopard. Any form he had ever been shrouded amongst all the dust. So something that I thought was interesting here is how Lyra stops from wishing. It kind of makes me think, is this a, something about Pullman speaking about prayer? Mm. Right? And like, prayers don't do anything. You have to go do it. Oh. You have to go make that change happen because Lyra's like, never mind. There's no point now. I have to just try and try and save Roger. And I like this scene of Pan changing rapidly as Lyra's struggling forward because what it is understanding as as we've discussed before that demons especially for children and you've talked about how lyra keeps trying out these different sort of occupations Mm -hmm. right these different roles to figure out who she is pan's doing that right now he's going through every form partially out of nerves but he's like who do i have to be what do i have to be who who's going to be the person that roger needs right now that i need to be right now in order to defeat my dad and she's not the only one whose demon is changing. The scene's laid out when she gets there. Azriel is working in the starlight, and there are wires leading from the sled, laid on batteries and jars. Snow's frosting everything over. Stelmari is crouched beside him. Her coat is glossy with power, and Roger's demon is in her mouth, struggling and changing as well. Bird, dog, cat, rat, bird. And Roger's a few yards away, straining from pain in the cold. He keeps trying to distract Lord Azriel, begging and pleading, but Lord Azriel knocks him to the ground like it's nothing. Rude. Yeah, absolutely. Rude. Yeah. So Roger, yeah, as you said, doing the same thing, trying to be anything that'll get out. Azriel's wires connect and the starlight reappears, blinding and glowing. He leads power down from it through the wire that is off a reel on the sledge and the other leads into the sky fascinating mm-hmm. uh, he has a witch actually assisting him who had flown here and Lyra realizes this when she sees a raven that's swooping down and then Azrael beckons to Roger who comes begging and crying meekly uh, the nature of a servant it makes me so sad because like he's just like got the power over him I hate him so much and it reminds me of Thorold last chapter with his pincher demon oh Thorold. Yeah. He was really mean to Thorold all the time. Yeah, Asriel's a fucking prick. I hate him. Uh, though I do wonder, does Roger partially come because Stelmaria is holding Roger's demon? As we see so. Mrs. Coulter, you know, the monkey would grasp the sparrow, right? Uh, yeah. Ratter with Tony Macarios. So I think that's part of what's at play. Mm-hmm. And Roger is still, you know, it, I don't know if it's just the servant. Like, kids... They trust the adults around them because they've been told to. The adults are supposed to look out for them. And What happens when they Rogers, don't? Yeah, Roger's already seen that they don't all do that. But he's grown up with Asriel being around. Ish. Admired stories of him. Well, he, he's heard stories of him yeah. that have been admirable. And also the ones that Lyra made up. Of like, yeah, they were fighting with swords, probably. Well, and like I said earlier, Satan is charismatic, right? That's yeah. his thing. Like, uh, he's attractive. Of course, Roger's going to come to his beckon and call. That's what Satan does. He lures people in. Same with Colder. Yeah. Lyra tells Roger to run, and she hurls herself at Asriel. Pan tries to fight Stelmaria and snatches it to get Celcilia back. 
but Stalmaria fights back and Pan lets go of Salcilia. The two young demons fight Stalmaria, changing forms rapidly. Both children were fighting her too, or fighting the forms in the turbid air, those dark intentions that came thick and crowding down in streams of dust, and the aurora swayed above its continual surging flicker picking out now in this building. Now that lake, now that row of palm trees, so close you'd think you could step from this world to that. I mean, yeah, kind of. So they don't actually use Cecilia's name, as far as I know, like that much in the chapter. But her name, as we've linked in the demonomicon.tumblr.com, I don't remember the exact post. Oh, yeah. It talks about how Salcilia's name means salt, and I kind of wonder what that means in the context of there are a lot of biblical references and religious references throughout the story. It's literally based off of Paradise Lost. And this phrase called salt of the earth from the Bible, which references people of great worth, and I, I'm a little worried about what it means in the context of this line from Matthew 5.13. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor... Wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Yeah, that's probably right. I mean, that feels like the right reference here. It's kind of demeaning, though. Yeah, but... Roger's not good for nothing. Oh, I agree. But that's what Asriel sees it as. Yeah, that's true. Roger was a great word. Lyra jumps and pulls Roger from Asriel, but Roger's in pain from his demon being caught. Asriel reaches towards Celcilia with a wire and Lyra empathizes, knowing the pain of separation, but also knows they have to keep going. Except then the cliff is collapsing. So they have no choice. They have to keep going. <laughs> what are you going to do? And I, this is, this is it. This is the climax of this chapter and of a lot of the book. And the language is just. It's good. It's horrible. It's good. You know. An entire shelf of snow, sliding inexorably down. The frozen sea, a thousand feet below. Lyra! Her heartbeats, leaping in anguish with Roger's tight-clutching hands. His body, suddenly limp in hers and high above the greatest wonder. At the moment he fell still, the vault of heaven, star-studded, profound, was pierced as if by a spear. A jet of light, a jet of pure energy released like an arrow from a great bow, shot upward from the spot where Lord Azrael had joined the wire to Roger's demon. The sheets of light and color that were the aurora tore apart, a great rending, grinding, crunching, tearing sound reached from one end of the universe to the other. There was dry land in the sky. Sunlight, sunlight shining on the fur of a golden monkey. Just, yeah. All, all of those beats... And how it, you find everything through just sensations. They don't tell you what happened, but you know. And that's that's the one nice thing. I know Golden Compass didn't want to put it on a screen, right? They didn't want to show it and show dead yeah. kids. They didn't want it. I get it. Whatever. So I don't get it. It was awful, but it was a horrible experience. And I never want to experience it again. Thanks, New Line. But um, this is just Roger. so beautifully and subtly done and sad. Yeah. It, it's just, I don't know, very masterfully written, and it's a beat by beat, and you go one moment, tight clutching hands of Rogers, and then suddenly nothing. And then it pushes you over, and you're back with Coulter and Asriel's demons. 
Yeah, it, it's all all of these things are juxtaposing with one another, right? The the wonder of the mm-hmm. sight, the horror of Roger's death, and then next thing you know, like you said, there's almost the no beauty. time to recover. Yeah, the it, it's both like the beauty and the wonder, but the horror of it being the the sunlight on the monkey. Everything's here in this moment. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the cliff stops falling, and Lyra sees the monkey and the leopard confront each other, and the monkey puts its hand out. To let, I don't know, the leopard sniff it and then, like, pets it. And when Lyra looks up, Mrs. Coulter is in Azrael's embrace, and lights are all around them. Mm. She's not sure how, but her mother uh, crossed that chasm and followed her up here. That is the line. Uh, As her parents embrace each other, though, Roger's own body is still. Mrs. Coulter laments that the magisterium won't let them cross, and Azrael says, Allow it! We've gone beyond being allowed as if we were children. I've made it possible for anyone to cross if they wish. Mrs. Coulter fears they'll forbid it, and Azriel says they can't. Too many will want to cross. They go back and forth, and Azriel says he knows how strong the church is, but dust is going to change everything. Marisa fears he wants to kill everyone with sin and darkness, and Azriel tells her to feel the sun and the wind of another world on her face. He's basically nagging her into going into this other world. He's like, Lyra would go. Azrael nags everyone into doing yeah, things. Yeah, absolutely. Real. Absolutely. I did like that line, though, of like, we're beyond being allowed as if we were children mm-hmm. with, you know, the juxtaposition of innocence and experience in this book and story and how the adults treat the children. Yeah. With all this. Anyway. Marissa says Lyra is more Azrael's than hers. Anyway, and she's like, she was too coarse, too stubborn. I left it too late. But where is she now? I followed her footsteps up. You want her still? Twice you've tried to hold her and twice she's got away. If I were her, I'd run and keep on running sooner than give you a third chance. <sighs> Parenting. talk about this. Yeah, in the discussion. Also, is this, is Azrael projecting right now? He's like, I'm yes. giving you a second chance right now, Marissa. But I'm not going to give you a third one. Is yeah. what he's saying. He's like, yeah, we can so. get back together. <sighs> all of this is so good, and it's so intense, and it all says so much about their relationship. It's so hard not to quote the whole thing. <laughs> I know, but we did pick out the good ones. We did. They keep going back and forth about whether or not Marissa should come, and I've pulled out the language of their bodies and their demons for this. His hands, still clasping her head, tensed suddenly and drew her toward him in a passionate kiss. Lyra thought it seemed more like cruelty than love and looked at their daemons to see a strange sight. The snow leopard tense, crouching with her claws just pressing into the gold monkey's flesh and the monkey relaxed, blissful, swooning on the snow. <laughs> Lude! It is. It's so vulnerable. Then you have, and their mouths were fastened together with a powerful greed. Also lewd. Their demons were playing fiercely. The snow leopard rolled over on her back. And the monkey raked his claws in the soft fur of her neck. And she growled a deep rumble of pleasure. Lewd. Their demons were apart again. Lord Asriel reached down and curled his strong fingers into the snow leopard's fur. Then he turned his back and walked away without another word. The golden monkey leaped into Mrs. Coulter's arms, making little sounds of distress, reaching out to the snow leopard as she paced away, and Mrs. Coulter's face was a mask of tears. You know what, this is a 
young adult slash children's book, but they should have they should have had a cookie out on the snow. Yeah, basically. They basically did that, but like didn't say that they did. That's but they really what it was. Yes. <laughs> if it were a children's book, they would be. They would have fucked on his bench that he made out of his sled. Actually, though. I mean, that might have been like what just snow. happened. Maybe we just don't know because she was traumatized from seeing it. Yeah, that's true. And it's like, I don't understand. Roger just died. Yeah. Yeah, he tells her that he won't think of her again if she doesn't go with him. Yeah. And then there's a line of, you and I could take the universe to pieces and put it together again, Marissa. We could find the source of dust and stifle it forever. And we're going to come back to that later. (sighs) But finally, she refuses. Lyra watched her coldly and then looked up toward the sky. Such a vault of wonders she had never seen. The city hanging there, so empty and silent, looked new-made, waiting to be occupied, or asleep, waiting to be woken. The sun of that world was shining into this, making Lyra's hands golden, melting the ice on Roger's wolfskin hood, making his pale cheeks transparent, glistening in his open, sightless eyes. She felt wrenched apart with unhappiness, and with anger, too. She could have killed her father if she could have torn out his heart. She would have done so there and then, for what he'd done to Roger— And to her, tricking her. How dare he? How dare he? She was still holding Roger's body. (sighs) Okay. Deep breath. I'm fine during all this. I'm not upset or anything. (laughs) This is fine. I've had, like, tears in my eyeballs for, like, 20 minutes. Yeah. They just, like, they haven't, like, left them, but they're there. Yeah. I can't really read. It's fine. It's fine. So, talking about Roger, still. Always. We're reminded throughout this last chapter of Lyra holding Roger's body again and again. And I think the image that I see is this idea of the Pieta. The most famous of these is a sculpture by Michelangelo, but the Pieta is a term that in Christianity refers to art of the Virgin Mary cradling the body of Jesus. And of course, as I'm sure many of you know, the idea of Jesus is, you know, he's a sacrifice, he's innocent to save people from their sin. And the moment of his death, actually, on the crucifix in a temple, the curtain is torn. This is the temple that houses the Ark of the Covenant. And I don't know if we, we've discussed this in a previous chapter, but like, so the curtain or veil had symbolized that barrier between the humans and the Holy of Holies. And again, this is where God was, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the temple. And in its tearing, it's seen that what Jesus' death did is open the way for people to commune with God, open their way to salvation. And while allegory and symbol aren't always like one-to-one in the story, right? In this moment with the tearing of the veil, between Lyra's world and the one in the sky, I think Roger becomes a stand-in for Christ because his demon hasn't yet settled, right? Mm. Roger's a child. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's he's the innocent within this story and this world, and he becomes this oblation or thing presented to those dark intentions, to God, whatever, like the body and blood of Christ in this moment. And his death, that energy coming from it, I guess, tears open the curtain between this world and that in the sky. The language keeps reminding us that it's a curtain of light. And taking the story in the context of like a reaction to the Chronicles of Narnia, 
I mean, that Christ-like figure doesn't return, right? Roger doesn't come back to life to tell us, like, yeah, it was all about mercy, as it was for the Pevensies and, like, the grace of the giant lion dying for Edmund, right? It's not that. The lesson here is about the death of innocence, mm-hmm. symbolized by Roger, but also the death of Lyra's innocence as she realizes the cruelty of the adults she trusted around her. But again, like, in this story... Roger's not the only one to occupy this role. Like, Lyra will have messianic elements to her story, similar to what's in the Bible. And we'll talk about that a little in the discussion. Yeah, we're also going to talk a little more about Roger in the discussion than just here. uh, Because there is some stuff that encompasses all three of the main books that we cannot talk about. So for now, we'll leave it at that. But it does also remind me of leading a lamb to slaughter, which is what we know Lyra did here, right? Um, (sighs) And you have Isaiah 53.7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. You also have Jeremiah eleven nineteen, But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter, and I did not know that they had devised plots against me. Let us destroy the tree with its fruit and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. Yes. I thought those were very, very relative passages from the Bible right now. Um, Yeah, I mean, like, that's absolutely what Roger is, being a lamb led to the slaughter, especially, you know, Christ is called Lamb of God all the time. And by severing his demon, what's going to happen to him? You know, all we know is that he dies. Uh, they, They killed his demon. They killed his soul. They killed him. So what happens next for Roger? He's just dead. Yeah. He he's one of the ones who we we hear earlier that they got like what the mortality rate of severing mm-hmm. to below five percent, but apparently Rogers in the five percent. Apparently, or apparently, all statistics are made up. <laughs> <laughs> I remember he said that. As Chloe said this once at brunch, she made it up literally. <laughs> <laughs> she made up a number. She's like, "Did you know X amount of percent of like statistics are made up?" something like that it was after i said one in five people are furries yeah so the whole time this is going on pan's been trying to get lyra's attention and he's talking to her about dust and he's talking about asriel and the oblation board the church coulter all of them want to destroy it and he says if they think dust is bad it must all be good pentelemon okay boomer (laughs) literally that's literally what he's doing he's like these boomers uh, everything they've seen these people do was evil, and they only believed them because they were grown-ups. And Pan's like, maybe it's not bad. Yeah, and Lyra's like, yeah, maybe it's really good. They think of a time when maybe dust would be cherished and sought after. And so they decide that they, too, will go and find the source of dust. We're just going to read the entirety of the last, the ending of this book, because it's incredible. And it's been a long journey, you guys, so... Let's take it on out and go on our next journey. As Roger was saying earlier, let's just be here for the present. The enormousness of the task silenced them. Lyra looked up at the blazing sky. She was aware of how small they were, she and her demon, in comparison with the majesty and vastness of the universe, and of how little they knew, in comparison with the profound mysteries above them. We could, Panelaman insisted. We came all this way, didn't we? We could do it. We got it wrong, though, Pan. We got it all wrong about Roger. We thought we were helping him. 
She choked and kissed Roger's still face clumsily several times. We got it wrong, she said. Next time we'll check everything and ask all the questions we can think of then. We'll do better next time. And we'd be alone. Yorick Burnison couldn't follow us and help. Nor could Farder Coram or Serafina Pakala or Lee Scoresby or no one. Just us then. Don't matter. We're not alone anyway. Not like... She knew he meant not like Tony Macarios, not like those poor lost demons at Bolvangar. We're still one being. Both of us are one. And we've got the alethiometer, she said. Yeah. I reckon we've got to do it, Pan. We'll go up there, and we'll search for dust, and when we found it, we'll know what to do. Roger's body lay still in her arms. She let him down gently. And we'll do it, she said. She turned away. Behind them lay pain and death and fear. Ahead of them lay doubt and danger and fathomless mysteries. But they weren't alone. So Lyra and her demon turned away from the world they were born in and looked toward the sun and walked into the sky. That's it. That's Northern Lights. We did it. Yeah. That deserves a clap. We did it. This is the beginning of the coming of age, right? This is the journey. Lyra's on a journey that's going to change her from here on out. A journey to other worlds. Wow. And I like the way this novel ends, right? Of her and Pan realizing that turns out following adults and all their twisted morals the whole time and deciding to set off and set on her own journey, as you said. It fulfills the master's sort of last charge to her. Of keep your own counsel. She and Pan realized, maybe they're all fucking wrong. We're going to do this. <laughs> God. Well, that's the end of Northern Lights. We are going to move into our dust discussion. Like I said, we're not going to do a dusty discussion today. There might be hints at what's to come, but there's nothing that's going to be spoiled for you. Um, there's too much to think about with the main trilogy with the end of this book, in my opinion, to warrant a dusty discussion so we'll keep it with the main trilogy main spoilers thank you so much for listening to this podcast you guys if you're not caught up we hope you get caught up starting in the new year we're going to work at putting out subtle knife for you so you have till the new year um make sure you're listening to our show coverage as well but that is covering spoilers of the main trilogy so watch out and enjoy our discussion so to start off Betrayal. But not the betrayal, Eliana. For some reason. So after all this buildup in Northern Lights, and you said something earlier about Roger, about uh, that he's just dead. And I was like, bitch, he's not just dead. You can't just say that. He's stuck between worlds. I have to say that, okay? I know. They have to be surprised. (laughs) I have to to protect their innocence. I'm, I'm cutting them off. Only when it's time can they know that they have to be the betrayers. God. I betrayed Roger. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, so this is supposed to be the betrayal in our minds. If you only read one book and you read Northern Lights, you're going to read this and go, ah, Roger was the betrayal because Lyra led him like a lamb to slaughter. But the real betrayal is when she separates from Pan to go get Roger from the underworld and save his soul. Uh, The journey through the underworld provides not only the closure for Roger's plot, torn from Lyra's world so cruelly, but also reform to her character. 
Pullman has said she leaves fantasy behind and becomes a realist. There's definitely a change in Lyra's manner moving forward, and it makes sense. At this point, Lyra's been betrayed by those she trusted. She's seen people die for her. She's learned she can't trust anymore, and she leaves the land of the dead as a different person, especially afterwards with what comes with Will. Uh, it carries even over into the secret commonwealth. I highly recommend it, but um, I've, if you've ever heard of it, I recommend it. <laughs> but uh, speaking of lamb to slaughter, I also wanted to add, did you know Roald Dahl had a short story called Lamb to Slaughter, and there was a character in it named oh. Mary Maloney? Hmm, I didn't know that. Yeah, you know, Mary Malone, Mary Maloney. I don't think it's... Uh, it, it could be something he's pulling from for the name, but I don't think it has anything to do with this. But I thought that was crazy. She kills her husband. She leads him to slaughter. Like she leads everyone to slaughter like a lamb on that. She tricks all the police officers, etc. She literally takes a lamb leg and clubs him in the back of the head. Oh wow! And she has like an alibi. She goes to the grocery to the market. She has an alibi of talking to the guy at the grocery store. So when she comes home and finds him dead and calls the cops, she's like, "I was just at the market." Damn. Yeah. Interesting. Intense. Nothing to do it with this, interesting. but interesting. It is interesting. Mary Maloney. Yeah. I, I, I'm still not jazzed, as you know, about Lyra leaving Pan. Yeah. As being the fulfillment of the prophecy. I'm like, literally, you had this right here, Pullman. Like, this is it. Everyone knows. All right. Everyone can see it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> anyway. I, but, uh, I would argue once you get to Commonwealth, it does work, I think. But I still think it, I, this is right here. I understand it, and again, like, I understand it from that humanist perspective of Pullman saying, yeah, betray yourself, right? Because even here, Azrael's like, don't lie about what you want, mm-hmm. Marissa, and that idea that betraying yourself is, like, one of the worst things you can do, yeah. but I'm also just like, it was Roger. Anyway, uh, you were talking about leaving the fantasy world behind and becoming a realist in, in Lyra's story and that change in her manner. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, this end of this book, right, Lyra's journey through the underworld is in many ways an echo of what's happening here, but Lyra doesn't have the same amount of agency as she does it at the end of her journey through the underworld, because she's, like, narrowly crossing close to this chasm in the ice, mm-hmm. which is, in my opinion, I think it's kind of like crossing past that bridge, right, that abyss in the underworld and then at the end, she crosses all of that into a window that goes into another world for both. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk a little so. more about this multiverse thing as we get towards the end, because this is opening up, obviously, the next two books, right? Like, this is making it like, oh, it's not just this one story about getting the Egyptians' kids back. It's about worlds, different worlds. And we're about to go into different worlds when we come back to this. But uh, death is going to die. Asriel says he's going to destroy death, even though he's really just restarting the cycle with himself as like some sort of godlike figure. But uh, it's hard because Asriel's just not compelling. Marisa Coulter is a very sympathetic character that you could start to feel bad for. Feels compelling. Mm-hmm. Asriel, I feel nothing for. Nothing. Yeah. When Metatron and goes out the window with them, it's not compelling to me enough like to really care like for maybe for marisa but for him no yeah nothing i feel nothing i care in that like it sucks like what they've done is they've damned themselves for literally all the rest of eternity Mm -hmm. but they're like martyrs almost they come back almost but they don't because 
when they die, right, mm-hmm. their souls are going to leave from where they are, which is in that abyss, and they're just going to do that for eternity. I just meant that, like, by going there and oh, killing yeah. God, they really were martyrs to save Lyra. But, like, yeah. that's even weak. It was weak. I I don't think that what they did was weak. I just, like, don't have an emotional connection to Azrael. That's what like, I mean. It doesn't do said, anything uh, for me. Yeah. It does nothing for me. Azrael does nothing for me. Sometimes he's hot. Like, I could imagine hate sex with Asriel, but I can't imagine me caring about Asriel. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk about that as we as we get there. Uh, this book ends also with Pan being like, what if the adults have it all wrong? And regarding Asriel saying, yeah, Dust's going to die, he has it all wrong because he misunderstands the nature of Dust mm-hmm. and thinks that destroying it is going to end Death. Mm-hmm. And I think in this, this is part of how Lyra becomes another Christ-like or messianic figure because she's venturing into the underworld, right? That's part of the whole thing. And she destroys death because, yeah, part of the whole hero's journey. Mm -hmm. Um, And that idea of triumph over death is very tied, I think, to ideas of Christ and the resurrection. And Lyra overcomes the destructive power of the sad, shitty limbo in the underworld Mm -hmm. and saves all of life by restoring the flow of dust, not by destroying the source of dust. Because that would be idiotic. Dust comes from us. Absolutely. Uh, God, there's that line, Asriel says, you and I could take the universe to pieces and put it together again, Marisa. We could find the source of dust and stifle it forever. Yeah, it, it's, an, it's a good line because once again of how things are reversed mm-hmm. with the misunderstanding again of dust in this, with the last book. And, you know, you're talking again about like Marissa and Asriel. Instead of taking the universe to pieces, finding the source of dust and stifling it forever, what they do is the opposite. It shows character growth, I guess, mm-hmm. of hurling themselves into the abyss that is sucking dust away, and they destroy Metatron. Mm-hmm. So speaking of abyss throwing, Lyra would have almost separated Roger in, in the fall, like herself, but so had the wire not reached Celcilia in time, Roger might have just been forced to separate from her. Right later, like 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 she later does from Pan, um, and we learn in some of the books of dust that it's more common than we think. It's still unnatural and rare and kind of like frowned upon to be separated from a demon, and it's still very very unnatural. But had that wire not reached, Roger could have almost lived. Yeah, I think it's another one of those like fifty fifty chances, right? Like, mm-hmm. it it's either you take the chance of he can basically do the witch thing yeah and be far away from his demon or he dies versus this where with the wire touching it's 100% basically assured mm-hmm. assured that he's severed it seems 5% like percent chance of dancing of dying if it's something that's for a reason like if you're severing yeah. for something that's full of heart and soul or something for a reason it seems like it's more successful is kind of what I'm getting in the books like if you're Doing it out of protection for yourself or for others, it seems to have that devotional blessing on it. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I wonder if that's a correlation, yeah. because that's kind of what I'm picking up as I go along. Um, yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't read those books, but yeah, Roger, he could have survived. I think maybe she was just like, you got to power through the pain mm-hmm. and 
Pan and Salcilia are going to join us in a second. It's going to fucking work, and it doesn't. Yeah. I want to talk about the Barnard and Stokes theorem, which was the multiverse theory that was posed by them in this book that they we hear about. The Magisterium silenced it. They theorized there were thousands or millions of worlds even, and we learn of a lot of them by name now as you go through the books. You have Libra's world, Will's world, Sitagaze's world, the world of the dead, the Galavespian world, the Mulefa world, the Republic of Heaven, the Kingdom of Heaven, and then a bunch of minor worlds. There are three worlds Will goes to, uh, a desert, a city with factory workers in chains, which reminds me of earlier when you were talking about uh, the something about slavery above, the zombies. Uh, and then also a meadow inhabited by blue bisons. Bisons. Are they humans? Are they alternate humans like the Malefa? I hope so. I hope so. Uh, Will, Baruch, and Balthamos cut into a moonlit beach. Will shows Eoric a tropical rainforest. He cuts into Lyra's Himalayas. The Galavespians and Lyra and Will go through a Dutch or Danish farmstead with massacred soldiers and raised villages. And Will sees through to a rainstorm area when trying to break the knife. So lots of different places that we're going to see in different worlds. And we're talking a lot about the multiverse idea earlier. And in the real world, Hugh Everett proposed this theory in 1957 of the plurality of worlds. According to his work, we're living in a multiverse of countless universes with copies of each of us and things that are similar and they all kind of stem from making decisions which we'll talk about everett wrote to einstein when he was 12 actually as well and einstein responded so this kid knew what he was about he was definitely brilliant the leading physicists of the everett's day in particular niels bohr one of the fathers of quantum mechanics could not stomach his theory they couldn't cope with the idea that every decision we make creates new universes one for all possible outcomes Everett had to publish a watered-down version of his ideas. Thoroughly disgruntled, he left physics. He then went on to work for the Pentagon instead. So that's good. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's very similar, that idea of a universe being ripped open uh, every time you make a decision, just like the subtle knife opening up universe holes, etc. So I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like one born each time. Yeah, I think that's definitely what Pullman is pulling from as we say. And a bummer about Everett. I, I think I remember reading recently that so it, was it that Everett was saying about decisions or was it also that on a quantum level like each different particle like each minor change makes mm -hmm. a different universe but other people have also theorized and are saying there's a possibility that it's actually there are less it doesn't happen on that level of frequency or something mm -hmm. like that that there are less occurrences parallel universes than one would think or something like that mm. anyway i'm not a physicist me either but i think that's um a good a good framing as we move into the next book mm -hmm. coming back to coulter and asriel i thought some of these lines were interesting of marissa asking but where is she now i followed her footsteps up and then as we mentioned of, you want her still twice, you've tried to hold her and twice she's got away. If I were her, I'd run and keep on running sooner than give you a third chance. And we discussed how this is a little bit of a Azrael projecting, right? A bit of foreshadowing as well. Because he gives her a third chance, you know? Yeah. They're going to spend eternity together now with a third. Yeah. And there's a lot of ways in which we see how Lyra and her mother are similar, especially as the story shifts focus more towards Mrs. Coulter in later books. But I realized that we've been talking about how Lyra's like her mother, 
um, as though she has inherited some of this from her. But could it be more of that Marissa? We can see her as more following in her daughter's footsteps, not just in the physical sense, but how her story mirrors Lyra in the later books with um, between what Lyra does with Yofer and Marissa's encounter with Metatron. Oh, yeah. As opposed, as opposed to it being the other way around. It's Marissa becoming more like her daughter and becoming more heroic because of her daughter. Yeah, uh, especially like... As we go forward with Coulter, you start to learn her intentions aren't just, I want my daughter because I'm an evil villain and I want her to help me take over the world and eat children. <laughs> Which I know isn't what's happening, but you know what I mean. But that's yeah. that's like what you think it would be. But then, obviously, you get what happens in the Amber Spyglass, um, where she knows Lyra will run. So she forces her to stay. Yeah, and it, she was trying to protect Lyra. Mm-hmm. In a weird, very in a weird, weird way. Weird, fucked up way. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I don't know. I think there's something to be said that we can discuss later when we get to those portions of, you know, Tana, when she came on, talked about how Pullman doesn't handle gender and gender roles always in the best way. And I think there's a criticism to be made of how Mrs. Coulter's redemption arc has to come through her suddenly becoming more maternal and loving her daughter. Mm-hmm. Even though she's still like kind of bad at it. She's still pretty bad at it, yeah. honestly. But anyway, the point is, there is a third time. Lyra doesn't exactly run because she's unconscious, but she does get away. Whereas for the third time between her and Azrael, yeah, kind of... Kind of works out and kind of doesn't. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> do you think they have sex while like Metatron watches or like maybe it's do a they just not get to? Maybe like at, at a certain point it has to be right. And what kind of parts does Metatron even have? Are they like metal, angelic, mm. robotic? They might not. He might not even be able to right because he doesn't have a body. Yeah. What is Metatron even doing in this threesome? <sighs> He's the third that no one wanted. <sighs> Is he a voyeur? I don't know. I don't know. He'd have to be, right? Yeah. I think that Azrael and Coulter could get off on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that sex is so lit. I, I don't even know how to explain it. You know that's good sex. Mm-hmm. That's true. You see it with the monkey raking, raking the leopard's fur. Yeah. Anyway, a couple last thoughts of... The language in this last chapter of Lyra and Roger running and trying to wade through... They, they keep saying the dark intentions up there. Mm-hmm. And we've touched on it before about the unseen intentions of the subtle knife, because it's so small, and talked a little bit about whether or not the alethiometer has any, which I think is still a question, right? Did the alethiometer and dust, does it have its own dark intentions? Because, I mean, we know that dust is, you know, it's self-sufficient. It can think. It, 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 we see Mary Ish, Ma- Ish yeah. like we see Mary Malone's uh, research. Yeah, and it's kind of like, it's kind of snarky at her. Yeah, just like the alethiometer sasses Lyra a little bit. Yeah. So because of that, I kind of wonder, like, we see in later books how Marissa has other powers-ish. Like, she's able to have some sort of control and protection from the specters in Sitagaze, mm-hmm. right? And Thoral tells us that Azriel has a way of sort of manifesting the things that he wants. Like, are the... Does Azrael just like have such a strong will or something that he's able to mold the dark intentions of the universe mm-hmm. to sort of manifest things happening to him? Or does the dust, you know, because it wants to keep existing, is it aligned with Azrael and therefore makes things happen for him? Because we're like, yeah, yeah, we're about this. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think 
maybe it's even the mastery of they they've mastered their own dust you know in the sims mm. you can uh if you get good at beekeeping <laughs> in the sims you can collect swarms of bees and make them do things for you isn't that basically like what happens in jupiter ascending i guess yeah that movie that story had a lot of promise and it just <laughs> yeah it did. didn't turn out the way it did uh, you know yeah well Lots to think about and lots to chew until we come back with the subtle knife. Man, I kind of I'm kind of excited. I really want to do the subtle knife now, but we're going to die if we do. Yeah, absolutely. We will be definitely bringing the subtle knife back in the new year, though. But we do need to finish up on John in a Song of Ice and Fire and the His Dark Materials season one episode reviews. Yeah. So of course, keep up with that. You can find it at the same place. Keep up with us and what we have to say on the live action television show at Girls Gone Canon on Twitter, C A N O N, or shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yeah, and don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes or a comment on Podbean if you so wish. If you are not already subscribed to us, make sure you're subscribed to us on your local podcast provider, whether it's Podbean iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, Acast, you name it. Yeah, Lord knows. There's a bunch of other th- aggregates out there that we might be on. Yeah, we didn't countless ask for other it. Worlds they just put us that there. we don't know. Yeah, countless yeah. worlds. Multi- multiverse. Yeah, every time someone makes a decision to add our RSS feeds to somewhere. <laughs> um, and, of course, we do have a Patreon for patrons $5 and up. We have special episodes. A lot of them are about A Song of Ice and Fire. We recently covered our watch through of the Golden Compass movie. But as you might notice, we did not cover the lantern slides that are at the end of Northern Lights slash The Golden Compass. We are going to do a special episode at some point covering the lantern slides as a patreon episode yes it might be released to the public eventually but for now it will be a patron only surprise as always i have been one of your hosts chloe and i have been another one of your hosts eliana thank you so much for traversing this book with us you guys we did it we got to the north we got to the north and now we're going into the city in the sky 2020 2020 subtle knife 2020 the city in the sky. Uh, castle in the sky. That's a Ghibli movie too. Oh my god! There's a castle in the clouds. That's a you know what you call it? Les Misérables. Oh yeah. Cosette. I was Cosette. There is a castle. All right. I'm stopping this recording. <laughs>